Yeah. I'll wait. Take your time. I'll. You guys got a lot to talk about. It's all right. I'm sure, there's you know. It's better, better than Facebook. Morning. There we go. All right. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Please turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 1. I'm especially happy. Uh, man, it was incredible worship this morning. I just, I thought, Kendall, that was incredible worship this morning. <laughs> it was really it was just really really it was, it was just spot on and 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 that combined with the prayer uh was really perfect for what we're going to talk about today um that the god who placed the stars in the sky also knows the depths of our heart and he loves us the same and to partner that with someone with uh commanding voice like Tim Fails to read that prayer of thanksgiving. That was very powerful. I thought that was absolutely perfect. Um, Good images to have in your mind because what we're going to be talking about today is history. We're going to be talking about uh, what is Rome. And, you know, I I looked hard, not all that hard, but I looked and to try to find a, um, a clip or something, because I'm sure that you guys would think, oh, this is a lost opportunity. He's not going to show a clip from Mel Brooks or Monty Python or, or something like that uh, that has to do with, with Rome. And the more I watch these like clips and stuff, none of them would are appropriate to show in church. So um, I'm sorry, I couldn't find anything that was appropriate. So we're going to begin with a story. On a warm spring day in 458 B.C., A Roman farmer was plowing the land adjacent to his small, round hut when the Senate recognized an immediate threat from a nearby tribe. In the face of such emergencies, the Roman Senate could offer one man supreme power for the duration of the crisis, giving him the title of dictator. The Senate offered the dictatorship to the farmer, Cincinnatus. He accepted the task and successfully led the armies to defeat the invaders. His grateful fellow villagers asked him to continue the leadership after the crisis, but he refused, preferring to return to his plow. Throughout the next centuries, this story is told of the strong, unassuming farmer, Cincinnatus, who uh, was told and retold by conservative Romans who looked back to the ways of the fathers for models of virtue. The American city, Cincinnati... We're playing Cincinnati later on, so <clears throat> anyway, was so named to honor George Washington, who was another savior farmer general. Uh, Romans preserve stories like this to remember their heroes and tra- to transmit their values to their families. Though they exist on the border between history and legend, these stories offer a glimpse of the origins of the greatness that would become Rome. Let me pray. 
God, again, you have placed the stars in the sky. You have created this world. You work through humanity. You work through your church. You work through your people to do the work that builds for your kingdom. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on your kingdom. And even as we consider the world around us in which we live and the world of history, we are also keeping our eyes as Jesus is the center. Pray this all in his saving name, Christ Jesus. Amen. So here we are, blazing through the book of Romans. Chapter 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the scene of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the call of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that the faith of the Roman Christians was well known. We know from the scriptures that Paul had a desire to visit them. Acts 2 actually tells us that the visitors from that there were visitors from Rome present on the day of Pentecost. And these visitors may have actually been the ones who established the church at the capital of the empire. And though it's important here what we talked about the first week of this Roman series as we're slowly working our way through the book of Romans over the next 21 years um, <laughs> is that the gospel is the underlying theme um, and I think that uh, a lot of us probably have um, a lot of images in our heads a lot of um, we did some uh, word association that first week Jason did it with us that what we think of when we think about the word gospel and I think that for many people, um, that has to do with getting saved. It has to do with a, a salvation doctrine that says that if I put my uh, trust in Jesus Christ, if I accept him as my personal savior, then I will go to heaven when I die. Um, and I think that the, the more I've studied this text and um, the text of Romans and, and the, the Bible, I, I think I get this image that it's a much bigger story. That the gospel, the good news, is the announcement of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. That it's the kingdom of God that Jesus taught us on earth as it is in heaven, past, present, and future. That that gospel, that the kingdom of God is a reality. Um, that the gospel declares that the whole world is for Jesus Christ. Is, um, the, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is king. And so when we look at verse 7 here, and we see to all who are in Rome, you know, I was, I was talking to, um, to Ann Jones before, and she goes, yeah, that's really something that you could just, you know, pass on right by. To all those in Rome, grace and peace. You know, this is the, uh, this is the beginning. Paul begins almost all, I think all, actually, of his 
uh, letters, grace and peace. You know, it sounds like a pretty common thing to say. Um, maybe not to us, but in first century context and what Paul was writing about, you know, to all who is in Rome, grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. But that's an incredible thing to start this letter with. To all those who are in Rome. What does it mean for that text to include the Christians in Rome? The greatest city in the world. The city in which Caesar, the most powerful man in the world, calls home. And I think what you get is what's important to see. And what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through the history of Rome. And my first thought was when when Jason um, talked about taking this verse by verse, uh, this first part of the series, um, I actually, I said, ooh, if you know, if you wanted, I could do the last one because I'd love to do a history of Rome. And then what ends up happening is you do over content and you end up getting like piles and piles and piles of stuff. Oh, I could bring this up. I could bring that up. But what I want to do is I want to talk us through the history of the power of Rome, where that power came from. I think what's going to happen is you're going to see that power coming from um, the myths and the histories that are kind of mixed together. There's a very mixed history and myth. Uh, and then you're also going to see the power of the people that attempted to have a voice throughout Roman history. And then ultimately, later on, you're going to see how that corruption gets into the hearts and minds of the empires of the day. The traditional date of Rome's founding is 753 B.C. And there is archaeological evidence to support that. There was a settlement at least around this time. As with most of the ancient world, though, um, history is mixed with myth. Um, the historian Livy said that there is no reason to object when antiquity draws no hard line between the human and the supernatural. It adds dignity to the past. One of the most beloved uh, stories that come out of this time is the story of Romulus and Remus. It's a beloved legend. Um, it's actually the combination of at least two myths. Um, it's told that Aeneas was a Trojan's hero that escaped the destruction of Troy after the Trojan War and settles in Latium where he founded a line of kings. Legend has it that um, one of the royal female descendants of Aeneas dedicates her life to serving the gods, um, becomes pregnant by the god Mars, and bore him twins, Romulus and Remus. Problem was, the princess's uncle saw that the boys were as a threat to his rule, and he throws them into the Tiber River. Sometime later, a shepherd comes along and discovers the twins being suckled by a wolf. Uh, those Harry Potter and Star Trek fans with ears to hear. Anyway. Uh, the shepherd raises the boy, and when they're grown, Romulus kills his brother Remus in the midst of a quarrel and becomes the first king of the newly founded city of Rome. This was an important story. It keeps going back. The, um, uh, one of the main pieces of art that um, uh, the, this, the Wolf of Rome um, actually was added. There was added uh, the babies, actually the twins were added to this piece of artwork uh, at the time of the Renaissance. And it shows that, that this legend had like, survived that much long. Now, a little bit more getting back to reality. Livy also said that with reason did gods and men choose this site for our city. All of its advantages makes it, all, of all places in the world, the best for a city destined to grow great. 
the city of Rome overlooked uh, a fertile plain and the Tiber River. This gave them access to both the Mediterranean Sea and the regions that were inland. Now, there were geographical differences between Rome and Greece. Greece was a very mountainous terrain that discouraged like political unification. Rome, on the other hand, had large plains along the western and eastern shores. This made trade and communication and agriculture easier. They also had more abundant rainfall on the western plain that gave Romans fields better placement for large-scale agriculture. They had calm and accessible harbors that fostered trade and eventually worked to help them gain a prominence in the Mediterranean. The early settlers in Rome were Indo-Europeans who lived, whose lives centered on farming the areas just around their small, round huts. From early on, farmers, farmers were seen as the brave and sturdy ones. Rome grew stronger by absorbing cultures of nearby Greeks and Phoenician colonies, but, but the most influential to them at the time was, in the early years, was the Etruscans. The Etruscans were a prosperous people that traded luxury items all over the Mediterranean. It's also interesting to see that they learned, the Romans learned divination from the Etruscans. Uh, they were interpreting the will of God in the entrails of these sacrificial animals. Um, Etruscan kings seem to have ruled Rome from the time around 500, uh, 509 BC when the monarchy was eventually overthrown and Rome became a republic. Now, the Republic at first was, well, and always, was completely dominated by the wealthy and the influential. Grave way to the struggle of orders, a series of political forms from 509 to 287 BC that centered around two main issues. The poor wanted guarantees against the abuse of power, and the wealthy plebeians, 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 anyway, wanted a role in the government. Eventually, more concrete laws were set into place but not without centuries of struggle. In 287 B.C., the struggle of orders ended with the tribal assembly. There were these tribal assemblies becoming the more principal legislative body in the republic. Money and connections still dominated the influence of those in power, but you start seeing the historians start talking about the people holding a sacred place of importance in the, uh, in the culture. Um, one historian said, for the people are the sole foundation of honor and of punishment. It is by these two things and these alone that dynasties and constitutions and, in a word, human society are held together. For the next few centuries um, saw the people rise in military and political power. And from 264 B.C. to 146 B.C., Rome fought in the Punic Wars against Carthage and subsequently acquired more territory. See, the continued expansion that fought on through the middle of the first century B.C. would also see a Roman Republic that controlled an increasingly powerful empire through occupied territory, riches, and slavery. By the end of the Republic, some 35 to 40 percent of the population were slaves. Technology also played into this in huge ways. The Romans were brilliant engineers that built state-of-the-art bridges and towers for their military campaigns. They used arches to enhance the size and the range and the flexibility of their construction. And they even created a series of nine aqueducts that each directed some 22,237,000 gallons of water into the city each day. Roman advancements, they, they cared about 
solid design and also practical application and visual appeal. As with each passing year, the Republic was becoming more and more unrecognizable, and there was this empire that was growing more powerful than ever. Eventually, the politicians needed to find a way to protect the people and themselves, and they came up with an agreement around the first, uh, middle of the first century B.C. that modern historians call the First Triumvirate. So there was Pompey, who uh, was this brilliant general, and he was loved by the Senate, and there was Crassus, who was a rich businessman, and Julius Caesar, who was this brilliant military general and orator who was just beloved by the people. As humans are wont to do, it didn't take long before they started to jockey for control. Crassus died in battle, and Julia, who was Caesar's daughter and Pompey's wife, dies in childbirth. Pompey and, uh, uh, now there's, there's no connection between Pompey and Caesar, and civil war breaks out. In 48 BC, Pompey loses a decisive battle in Greece and flees to Egypt, where he's assassinated. Caesar follows Pompey to Egypt, becomes involved with Cleopatra, spends the winter with her, and fathers her child. Caesar then returns to Rome, where he accepts the title of dictator. Only, unlike Cincinnatus, he doesn't renounce the title when the emergency of the Civil War is over. Instead, he announces himself dictator for life. He wore royal regalia and established a priesthood to offer sacrifice to his genius, his spirit. And he has his image placed on coins. Soon, people begin to think of Caesar as grown too much power has grown in too much power, and in the Ides of March, he is assassinated by the, his own Senate on the floor uh, at the statue, uh, on the floor of the statue next to Pompey, his enemy. Um, in 43 BC, the second triumvirate emerges, consisting of Mark Anthony, one of Caesar's trusted generals, Lepidus, another trusted general, uh, governor and general, and Octavian, Julius Caesar's 19-year-old grandnephew and adopted son. Octavian played on the symphony of the people by calling himself Caesar. At first, the three rulers divided up the empire and ruled for about five minutes until uh, <laughs> until jockeying for control. Um, in, they ruled for about five minutes in peace until Cleopatra, having lost Caesar, seduces Mark Anthony and Octavian forces Lepidus into, into retirement. A peace treaty is attempted through the marriage of Anthony and Octavia's sister, Octavia. Octavia becomes pregnant by Anthony, but Anthony runs away to Egypt to be with Cleopatra. War breaks out. Octavian is the victor. Rome conquers Egypt. Anthony commits suicide, and Cleopatra, refusing to be taken prisoner, kills herself by way of poisonous snake. The new holdings of the empire now allow Rome to be the dominant power in the Mediterranean world. On January 1st, 27 BC, Octavian appears before the Senate and claims that he had brought peace to Rome, thus retiring the rule to the people of Rome. The Senate is so grateful at this, they name him Augustus, a name that implies majesty and holiness. He refers to himself as the first citizen, the person upon whom everyone depended. By 2 BC, the Senate awarded Augustus the title Father of the Fatherland. Under, uh, under Caesar Augustus, Rome deepens its control over the empire, and a cult of Caesar worship develops over the next 100 years as the fastest-growing religion in the region. See, Augustus's uh, successors find that they aren't under quite the same amount of cor- uh, corrective scrutiny as a series of corrupt emperors rule Rome with nothing short of insanity. Tiberius made himself a private uh, sporting house where sexual extravagances were practiced for his secret pleasure. 
In time, he grew so paranoid that even if someone was caught carrying a coin into the bathroom with Augustus's image on it, he, w- he executed them for uh, the insult. Following Tiberius was Caligula, who I think was the one that named the horse to the Senate. He demanded to be worshipped as a living God. He had perverse sense of humor, and accounts suggest that he enjoyed dominating others, humiliating them, or inflicting cruelty. He ordered men killed just so that they could feel themselves dying. He grew so much in power that he believed himself to have transcended mortal life. Skipping over Claudius, we come to Nero, who was probably Caesar when Paul wrote Romans. Nero killed many members of his own family that he saw as a threat. He had his own mother poisoned three times, arranged for a ceiling of her room to collapse, and and then caused her boat to sink. And when none of these methods uh, managed to kill her, he hired an assassin to kill her and make it look like a suicide. He was so despised that his personal guard deserted him just to be avoid being per, uh, avoid being publicly executed. Eventually, Nero commanded his slave to slit his throat. In the East, he was to be called Lord and Savior of the world. He also implemented the first large scale of persecutions of Christians in 64 AD, killing hundreds of them. Some accounts even suggest that when Christian men and women were brought into the arena for slaughter, they died so bravely that some Roman spectators converted on the spot. To all those who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I spent the last few weeks thinking about this stuff. And that line just kept ringing in my head. Who are they to trust? They have so much at stake. There's so much power that was floating around at the time. We like to think of the kingdom of God as something that is within. It's a change of our heart. These people were desperate for a revolution. And Paul writes to them, he says, you church that you are in Rome, you are are at the center of of the world grace and peace I have a gospel to share with you a gospel that is about the trustworthiness of God that this God is to be trusted around anything else that that this you can focus on that regardless of what else is going on around you this It's what you can focus on. That the gospel, it's not just about you and God. It's about the kingdom of God crashing into earth. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. This is absolutely incredible in considering the the history of Rome. Starting in chapter 13, or uh, verse 13. He's talking about the preeminence of Christ. He has delivered us from the power of darkness 
and conveyed us into the kingdom of the, of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones of dominions or principalities or powers, all things created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, and who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, firstborn from the dead, and in all things may he have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace, peace through the blood of his cross. Grace and peace, Paul says. Grace and peace to the church in Rome. Karl Barth, theologian Karl Barth, says that from Jesus Christ, Paul has received grace and apostleship. Grace is the incomprehensible fact that God is well pleased with man and that a man can rejoice in God. Only when grace is uh, recognized to be incomprehensible is it grace. Only when grace is recognized to be incomprehensible is it grace. Grace exists, therefore, only when the resurrection is reflected. Grace is the gift of Christ who exposes the gulf which separates God and man and by exposing it, bridges it. But inasmuch as God knows men from afar and is known by them, In his undiscoverable majesty, the man of God must inevitably approach his fellow man as an emissary. I read that and I was like, emissary? Let me look at the definition of that. And I thought it was interesting that it says that an emissary is one that negotiates peace. That grace is calling Paul to peace and to bring peace He's talking about grace. Grace to the kingdom which these people are finding themselves in. Grace to the individual that is caught in their sin. And that through the individual, to the kingdom, to creation, the kingdom of God is announced. That is powerful stuff. And I hope that we can think about that as we move into the season of Advent as we move into the season of anticipation of the Messiah and the Christ coming into a world that is desperate for Him. God is King. Jesus is Lord. And it's God's justice that's going to win in the end, not Caesar's justice. It's God's restorative power, God's restorative justice that we need to focus on. That's the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have given your people the task of building for your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We are so thankful for the tasks that you give us. Help us to to think and to pray through how you would 
help us be a voice of grace and peace to the world that surrounds us, to our church and to our work and to our families. Help us that the first thing that's on our mind, the first thing that's on our lips is grace and peace. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you.